This is Diet of Brussels, and I'm really uh, thrilled to have with me a guest, a fellow uh, senior fellow of uh, the UK and Changing Europe programme, Catherine Casty, who's professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Sciences at Northumbria University. She works on a, a range of really interesting things around uh, critical border studies, and uh, her project's been focusing on the uh, refugee crisis from uh, Ukraine, uh, particularly looking at responses in the UK, Poland and Romania. Um, Catherine, first of all, welcome and thanks for joining us uh, today. Thanks for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. Um, it, recently, you've been doing some work on the Temporary Protection Directive. Um, just want to set the scene for listeners just kind of what is it why is it there and more importantly why are you interested in it yeah so i think one of the things um so we often describe people who were displaced from ukraine after march 2022 as refugees but actually most of them are in european union member states and also um in the uk under some form of temporary protection and so this is because the eu in march 2022 enacted what's called the temporary protection directive so the temporary protection directive was developed um on the back of the conflicts in the balkans in the 1990s and early 2000s and so it's actually a framework that was implemented in 2001 but as we know, it was triggered for the first time um, by uh, the displacement of people from Ukraine as well. So it was developed in a different context to um, which it's now being enacted. Um, and I think it's really interesting. So the Temporary Protection Directive guarantees not only kind of rights of movement and kind of resettlement and residing in EU member states, but it's also got lots of other rights. So rights of access to housing, employment, um, social supports. Uh, education, healthcare. So it's not just kind of um, enabling the movement of people um, who were fleeing the conflict, but also um, tries to support them in kind of stabilising um, and settling for a period of time in um, EU member states. But obviously, it's a framework. <laughs> so it has to be enacted by all of the member states in terms of their kind of national laws and frameworks and legislation. So um, there's been a kind of uh, hugely kind of differential um, operationalization, I guess we can call it, of the directive across member states. It's interesting. It's one of those uh, classic EU tools that is developed for one context or in one context and then finds itself uh, shoehorned into a really very different kind of uh, space and you know sort of coming out of the, the experience of the wars in the former Yugoslavia you know relatively contained and you know particularly coming as it did in 2020 uh, in 2001 sort of coming at the end of the the active conflict so in some sense uh, well, in many senses, uh, something for after it would have been useful uh, in that immediate kind of context, but again, sort of a, a degree of moral obligation and a sense of, you know, if this does become a problem again, we give ourselves some tools. And then, as you say, kind of being used for dealing with a quantitatively and qualitatively different kind of conflict that, uh, again, it see my impression as somebody who's not studied it too closely is that actually it's worked surprisingly well in the, the context but clearly comes with some problems and some tensions and is my lay perspective a, 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 an accurate one 
Yeah, I think so. I think obviously in terms of the imperative to introduce it as well, it was just, um, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it was sound in terms of politically, there was a commitment to kind of welcome people and that and that kind of wasn't just politically, I think that was across communities as well um, within the European Union, um, but also just pragmatically that the current frameworks for kind of supporting those fleeing kind of conflict within the European Union was really sort of national asylum systems and and they were you know unable to cope I guess with this kind of large influx of people so the directive really does what it says in that sense that it it sort of provides a kind of mechanism that it would enable kind of member states to to actually provide some form of protection to a large group um, um, of people um, um, in a relatively um, rapid kind of context and, and period of time but of course um, we'll see for example um, we've seen in our research that um, this has meant very different things in the Polish context to Italy or Germany even um, and we had some people at our workshop from kind of some of the northern European countries as well uh, where they've seen much lower kind of flows um, so, so the challenges are different to the different member states um, and of course the context under which the directive was mapping was also different in terms of different states relationships to Ukraine prior um, to 2022 as well so that's why one of our case study countries I think is really important because it's a neighbouring country Romania so it had kind of large numbers of flows of people from Ukraine after March 2022 but it didn't have the same sort of established relationships both on a kind of interpersonal level so there were lots of kind of Ukrainian people living in Poland for example and um, those who had gone to Poland to study or work in the years prior to 2022 um, but also on a kind of geopolitical kind of national level the Romanian kind of government didn't have the same sort of relationships with Kiev as we see um, from Warsaw for example so you know there's this lots of kind of context really to take into account um, and of course that that context has had impacts for um, those who've fled the conflict and where they've ultimately settled and their experiences. It's a, yeah it's that mix of geography but also of the kind of social bonds and links and the you know, kind of the perceived proximity of, of spaces and yeah that kind of contrast between Poland and Romania I think is quite telling that you know both of them find themselves uh, in the mix through uh, virtue of their, their situation but very different kinds of uh, responses and adaptations to, to dealing with that and of course also thinking about it more broadly just as countries that historically have not been uh, or have not seen themselves as countries of reception for refugees, uh, again, that requires a major sort of shift in mindset, just as we've seen uh, in many countries in southern Europe uh, over the last couple of uh, decades, um, you know, just the shifting patterns of how migration have, uh, have affected countries differently over time and, and places that saw themselves as either countries of, you know, sending people out, you know, Ireland is a classic example as well, you know, that it was always had this idea of itself as sending people away and then now bringing people back and uh, welcoming new people. So what kind of challenges does that create for uh, a society or for uh, a policy to, to kind of go through that kind of shift? 
Yeah, I think that's why um, a really key part of the research that we're doing focuses not only on governmental responses, but non-governmental responses and communities as well. So um, within Poland um, and within Romania, obviously, there was some level of support. Um, so we see kind of in the non-governmental sector, for example, support for refugees, um, asylum seekers. Um, but most of those organizations were relatively small. We didn't have much presence for international um, NGOs, for example, in those countries. So we've seen, and then we often had, so particularly in the Polish context, they're sort of smaller kind of cultural organizations or um, which were directed specifically towards Ukrainians. And some of those have developed historically um, to, um, to support Ukrainian diaspora, for example, who have been living in Poland, some of them for a very long time, but also labor migrants, obviously, um, who I mentioned earlier, who migrated to for work um, to Poland um, uh, in the last sort of decade or so as well. So I think I think um, there there were lots of organizations, but on a very low level, um, that were sort of dealing with very small kind of numbers. And and so I think one of the really big transformations we've seen is in the non-governmental sector and civil society in general. And I think in Romania, um, that kind of sector was was very underdeveloped really prior to March 2022. So one of the organizations that we were dealing with was, you know, really had programs for homeless people or um, Roma or those exiting prison and they've pivoted. Um, and most of their work now kind of supports um, those still in Ukraine, but also people who fled to Romania from Ukraine as well. So we've seen this kind of whole scale transformation really of the sort of non-governmental sector. And I think particularly now, um, as time has passed on a little bit, um, and international NGOs are not really focusing their efforts um, uh, in those areas as well. So I think those domestic NGOs have become really, really important. Um, and often, obviously, they're, they're sites of, of community responses as well. So we've also been looking at other institutions like universities that got involved and have been involved in, in those kind of more local level responses as well. So I think there's a whole scale kind of shift, but there's also obviously divisions opening up as well. Um, um, as a result of those changes. And, and of course, as we, we talked a lot about this in, in um, the workshop that we had um, last week, that um, uh, views and attitudes and opinions have changed over time as well. Um, so it's quite, um, it's, you know, that there's, yeah, there's been divisions opening up within the sort of countries, you know, that part of the study, but also within kind of populations of people who fled from Ukraine as well. I think it, yeah, I, I think this kind of come, comes to the next sort of major challenge. You know, this is a temporary protection directive. It's meant for exceptional circumstances. Um, the, the challenge was always going to be with the, the war in Ukraine, uh, that this was unlikely to be a short-term situation, one that could be rapidly resolved to the point that people, people could feel comfortable uh, returning to their homes and, you know, also just thinking about the material destruction of uh, economies and uh, properties and all the rest, you know, that, that clearly was always going to be a major challenge. But before we come to thinking about how host countries have gone through changes in their understanding, you mentioned changes in diaspora populations in amongst Ukrainians themselves. Um, could you you say a bit about how that works and you know what what kind of views you're getting and you know what what's the development that's taking place there 
Yeah, so I think it's been really interesting. So especially in the Polish case where um, actually the Polish government has been hugely dependent on existing kind of um, migrants from Ukraine to facilitate all of the response, actually, um, you know, just to guide people in housing, to help, you know, just on an everyday level. So um, but um, obviously, uh, you know, the, the diversity because of the numbers of people that have fled Ukraine since March 2022, um, I think that um, that, that, that that presents particular challenges. So, for example, um, you know, that there might have been an expectation amongst that kind of labour migrant community in Poland that was existing that that um, those fleeing Ukraine um, would take sort of any type of jobs or and we've seen obviously like because of the diversity of, of, of the people that have left Ukraine that there is there are large numbers of kind of professional people that want to kind of continue their professional lives and establish themselves in professionally even if it is temporarily in the country that they they have you know they they fled to and then also those that are still working in professional capacity and jobs um in Ukraine if if remotely as well um so so there there've been some of these um challenges in terms of how do we provide for this diversity of groups how how do we um implement kind of policies that would enable a sort of flexibility you know in terms of um what these kind of individual group needs are um as well so 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 i think um this is this has been a sort of challenge and, and it will continue to be a challenge going forward because, you know, um, some of the research, is, you know, that's emerging is showing that some people obviously fled very rapidly from Ukraine, um, weren't able to gather any of their belongings, lost kind of family members, have nowhere to go back to, um, but plan to go back. Um, and some of those people are the people that we met on the Black Sea coast in Romania, for example, where they really are just residing temporarily, kind of waiting for this opportunity to return. Um, but others um, who've kind of picked up their lives and moved them to Norway or Finland, for example, um, have done so um, probably with a, a sort of longer term plan in mind as well. So there are very individual kind of differences, I guess, um, and, and the challenge, I you know, for many states will be how, how to accommodate those in a way that's acceptable to, you know, the existing population as well, because we often find um, particular views being expressed about um, refugee flows in terms of, um, you know, their deservingness and their vulnerability and um, who, you know, how they should behave, what is expected of them. Um, so um, uh, one of the presentations we had last week at the workshop um, described an experience that um, one refugee woman um, from you Ukraine had in the UK, uh, where she found that her host was very hostile to the fact that she might be quite picky in the type of job that she took. So she was offered one job, which her host thought was a perfectly good job, and she decided to hold out for a better job. And she did receive a better job offer, kind of more in line with her experience. But in that moment, she had um, a very uh, difficult altercation with her host because they they felt that she should be accepting of any kind of job you know that, that she sort of had to go back and start from the bottom as someone um who's fled uh conflict so i think that's really interesting that definitely kind of maps onto some attitudes that we see often with um kind of populations that are fleeing conflict um refugee populations as well so i think there's there's a lot of this that you know has to be negotiated i guess um within national context and of course there's is really influenced by the sort of political um, discourse and narratives around um, uh, people on the move in general, but particularly discourses around uh, refugees and asylum seekers, which have not always been very favourable in a lot of EU member states.
I think that would be putting it generously. <laughs> um, so, I, and I think that's one of the really interesting things about the the Ukrainian case is that actually, in comparison to pretty much any other group, the the popular reception or the popular perception of this very substantial group is actually very positive in in certainly in comparative perspective and partly that's because of the nature of their displacement partly i guess it's also that the composition of uh, the that refugee population is quite different as well that with many uh fighting age men being required to stay in ukraine uh to enlist that you end up with a, a kind of uh a removal of what's often seen by host populations as sort of the more threatening you know groups of foreign young men uh who you know in the kind of that imaginary of uh, uh unpleasant uh immigrants and uh people coming to our community that you have you haven't really got that same kind of element in the mix at the same time you know we, we we've kind of started to talk around this you know attitudes do seem to change and you know that immediate willingness to provide for large populations who are in clear needs uh the sort of the gratitude to be able to escape a, a country that's under attack seems to mutate into something which is you know how are we going to to deal with this in the long term and uh yeah i'm sure that listeners wherever they are will have no families uh, of Ukrainians who've come to live in their communities and you know what were temporary arrangements have now become arrangements that are stretching towards their second anniversary and you know that does create conflicts you know even if it's not about what job people think you should be taking it's just at some point if you've been sharing your house uh, and you're not sure and you know we're looking like we're in for another cycle of fighting in uh the east of ukraine that you know the, the temporary becomes permanent which again is very eu on brands um how how have attitudes in the countries you've been looking at changed uh you know what impact does that have yeah i, I yeah i think um, it's differentiated, right? There's different um, interpretations. So I, I can kind of illustrate that, for example, um, in Romania. So um, one of the things that's um, been very kind of controversial in the Romanian context is um, this diversity of the population who fled from Ukraine, for example. So um, uh, Romanians have, have, you know, frequently commented on in our fieldwork, but also in the national press and in kind of political discourse on and particularly kind of wealthy and very visible, visibly wealthy um, kind of Ukrainians or people from Ukraine who have been coming to Romania, some of them on a temporary basis, some of them have been residing there for a little bit longer as well. And 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 the challenge that that presents to them in terms of, um, you know, um, high levels of poverty in Romania itself and particularly in kind of impoverished communities which are close to the border where um, this wealth, you know, um, is, is seen in a negative light. So we'd had different kind of interpretations um, in our fieldwork around this kind of situation. So there were some that just kind of clearly saw this wealth as a sign that these people weren't in need in terms of fleeing conflict. But we had others who interpreted this in a completely different way. And they said, 
this this showed them really that that wealth doesn't help <laughs> in this kind of circumstances so you can have kind of material wealth and visible wealth but actually um when a kind of large neighbor invades and you know um and there's a full-scale war actually that wealth is, is of no use in terms of protecting you as well so there seems to be these kind of different voices um um but particularly um in romania um some of this the the diversity the um um of the people who have fled Ukraine has caused kind of some kind of controversy politically and I guess as well because of the level of support um, that uh, uh, people who have fled Ukraine have been receiving from the Romanian state so we've seen a hardening of some of those policies um, uh, uh, towards people from Ukraine and Romania as well so caveats like um, children have now had to be enrolled in Romanian schools um, to, to receive kind of social support um, um, and people have had to be looking for or in, in employment or trying to gain employment as well so we've seen some changes over time I guess in the kind of policies um, and of course there's evidence that um, some people were exploiting some of the um, you know the temporary protection directive to gain kind of financially and as well and and sometimes those types of stories can be quite high profile I guess um, so we definitely as time have has gone on we've seen a sort of tightening of who is eligible to, for certain levels of support and that's gone hand in hand with a kind of popular discourse that pe people have considered um some of those who um have you know come from ukraine um to romania in particular as to to be a kind of exploiting um the support that's on offer and we'll talk about the, the british experience because clearly not a member state, not under the, the directive, but, you know, kind of similar kind of tensions and, and developments there. Um, but if we can kind of come back to the, the temporary protection directive itself, that's not a permanent status. So that runs until uh, March 2025, I think mm -hmm. you, were, you were saying. Um, what happens at the end of that period? Let's assume that the conflict is still a live one in Ukraine that people are still unable or unwilling to return to Ukraine. What do you see happening uh, either at the EU level or within member states? Do you think that there will be a, a move to extend the protection or to find alternative instruments that allow Ukrainians to retain the, the situation that they've had? Yeah, so I, it's it's a it's a really interesting conversation that we started to have a little bit at the workshop last week. So I think um, one of the things that member states will obviously be thinking about is will the EU do anything um, in terms of kind of extending the directive um, in the current context? There's there's not a mechanism to do that, <laughs> so it would have to be a post-directive framework of some nature that would be developed by the European Union to to guide member states, I guess, on how to handle uh, uh, the status of those who currently have temporary protection after March 2025. And I think obviously that will then be enmeshed in any discussions um, that Ukraine is having with the EU at that time as well, because obviously as part of the full-scale um, Russian invasion, we saw um, that in June 2022, um, uh, Ukraine gained candidate status um, for um, membership of the European Union as well. So is this part of, I guess, the, a set of negotiations that might happen um, between Ukraine and the European Union and what 
role will Ukraine play in kind of influencing that as well? But I think if if a framework is not developed, we're really leaving it to, you know, national polities to develop um, within their existing kind of immigration and border frameworks um, some form of status for um, people from Ukraine. And obviously that will lead to highly kind of differentiated outcomes for um, people from Ukraine across um, the EU. Yeah, I mean, the question of Ukrainian membership of the EU is, well, I'm a pessimist, but maybe that's because I, I focus on uh, Brexit issues and so it's my natural uh, hunting ground. But yeah, certainly, you know, what it sounds like is that the, the decision that was expected next month at the European Council to start negotiations now looks as though it, it might well not be happening in the face of particularly Hungarian uh, intransigence, um, possibly also Slovak uh, reticence uh, around uh, conferring that that important next step in the, the process. But even if it were given, you know, it's clear that that's a multi-year process mm. on the even on the most incredibly optimistic reading. So you know that. But I think you know what's then interesting is how much that exchange of people helps improve understanding about Ukraine's situation and, you know, people identify more and see Ukraine as a a more, air quotes, European country than than might have been the case before. But, you know, we kind of run up into the usual problems around accession discussions, which is for larger countries to the east might, everyone will want to leave those countries and come and work in the, the rich Western parts, you know, and that was clearly a problem during the Central East European enlargements uh, of the 90s and the 2000s. So, yeah, yeah, I think we kind of got some sort of ambiguities there. But yeah, it it clearly is going to be a formative experience in how that unfolds. And I think, you know, where the Ukrainian government has been very adept is making something of that, not overplaying it, but certainly reminding people of you know how Ukraine is there at the the literal front line of Europe and is you know has framed its its fight against Russia partly in those terms, which uh, you know strikes me as a, a very astute kind of way of building a general coalition, but also specifically in in moving towards that kind of membership uh, track. Yeah, I think definitely from March 2025 we can consider that there will be the start to be a re-bordering. I guess we we can, you know, in terms of critical border studies, we would think about the temporary protection directive as a de-bordering kind of mechanism and technology. And then we will see from March 2025, you know, as, as you kind of indicating this kind of rebordering and this re-establishing of kind of controls um and but but how that kind of plays out has to you know be in line with some of that kind of sensitivity to kind of um the political situation in Ukraine and the geopolitical situation in Ukraine as well so how kind of got you know national governments manage that will obviously you know be quite kind of contextually dependent but I think um you know that 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 it is this at the moment, there is this patchwork of national frameworks. And then if the EU really wants to have some sort of, you know, um, nas- you know, um, 
you know, guidelines that will direct member states. They really have to start thinking about it now and, and what that rebordering might look like. Because as you said, um, you know, there will be concerns that after March 2025, there might be some kind of further waves that would be more akin to a kind of labour migration um, rather than um, those fleeing, um, which obviously there's been overlapping elements of that anyway. So I think that's that's one thing that, that we definitely see. But, the, but there are more than 4 million people from Ukraine, you know, who are residing with temporary protection. So it really is something um, that the EU should consider. And obviously, as, as well, you said, you know, what, what can or would or potentially might they learn from Brexit as well? And and having to kind of deal with um, citizens of the UK who were residing in EU member states and then vice versa, what the UK has learned from settled status and the implementation of settled status, for example. So there are kind of things, um, you know, that uh, have definitely emerged during Brexit and after Brexit and part of the negotiations that actually will be weighing on um, some of the way that um, uh, controls and restrictions vis-a-vis um, -vis Ukraine are and people from Ukraine are introduced post-March 2025. It's, yeah, that's a really interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about. I think, you know, when I think about Ukraine's European vocation, as I think we probably find someone in Brussels who would describe it as such you know it, it's always felt that you know the reference points have been more classic accession accession to Central Eastern Europe is a kind of standard thing when you're thinking about bordering and debordering and rebordering you know the the very tight is it tight-fisted it's not tight-fisted but the less than generous way in which uh member states approached freedom of movement and you know these transition periods that almost all member states put in place about free movement of people for those uh central east european countries joining uh and you know ironically the uk is one of the, the very small number of member states that didn't uh, introduce those in 2004 so we've i hadn't thought about how the uk and brexit changes that kind of uh, conception and that kind of understanding partly i think because uh, you know from my work i think the eu sort of places brexit in a very special place and mm. a very special kind of set of things so uh, how much do you think the eu would be willing or does learn lessons from that that uk experience yeah, I think I think it's interesting because, you know, even though they might kind of discursively and narratively put it in a different box, there obviously there's kind of legislative and legal mechanisms that um were created. Um and as we've seen obviously in the UK in terms of, you know, the response to people displaced from Ukraine actually was on the basis of things that were developed um earlier for um Syrian refugees. So for example, sponsorship and kind of housing schemes, you know, the, the Homes for Ukraine scheme didn't, you know, it was it was on the basis of existing kind of schemes that had been developed as well. So although there might be a kind of different kind of discourses circulating around, um, you know, the particular frameworks that would develop, um, you know, post uh, temporary protection directive, I wonder if some of the mechanisms and the, you know, the, the sort of key kind of 
legislation might actually draw upon some of those things that were developed. But obviously, as you said, you know, perhaps it would be unpopular to kind of draw those kind of comparisons. And I think we saw a, a very different kind of um, discussion taking place, you know, with regards to people from Ukraine, you know, um, in relation to people from Syria or Afghanistan, for example, um, in sort of uh, the UK as well. So I think perhaps, yeah, we will see this separation um, in terms of parallels not being drawn, but perhaps some of the, the mechanisms um, might be um, underlying um, the framework that is developed. Nice. So uh, it's really yeah, essentially, I'd be interested to see how that that plays out. We talked around the UK a little bit, and you know, kind of use it as an analogy. It'd be interesting to kind of get your sense of how all this question of Ukrainian refugees has played out in the UK itself. Uh, so, not a member state, but also uh, implementing special schemes, emergency schemes with the Ukrainian uh, family scheme and other kind of visa. Uh, arrangements, uh, the Homes for Ukraine scheme, uh, which, well, I don't know if it has worked. I know that it was very problematic to get uh, going. Um, has the UK, despite not being a member state of the EU, followed the same kinds of tracks and tensions and developments that you've seen in uh, Poland and Romania, or is it a case apart again? Yeah, I mean, I think it's slightly apart because it, it wasn't a deep-bordering mechanism that was employed in the same way as the temporary protection directive. So there was still a kind of visa scheme. So the UK didn't, you know, it, 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 you know, it changed the filters of the border, but as actually what the, we haven't seen the kind of whole-scale kind of deep-bordering that that um, uh, we've seen in EU member states, and because you know, again, the UK geographically was able to do that. So there, it was just a case of we didn't have, you know, the same numbers of people just immediately crossing the border that needed kind of protection and safety in the same way. So um, they were able to kind of relatively quickly for the UK home office kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, um, develop and and implement um, what's what's essentially a kind of different kind of visa regime vis-a-vis um, -vis people from a particular state. So um, I think we've seen quite a lot of differentiation across the UK, which, I, you know, is interesting. And one of the things that, um, you know, um, we're researching in our particular project um, is, is to try and pull out, you know, some of that, because uh, in general, um, particularly um, the Scottish government, obviously reacted very differently to government in Westminster in terms of um, supporting whole scale uh, uh, people fleeing um, the conflict in Ukraine. So, um, you know, they took it upon themselves to provide housing, for example, whereas it was on an individualised basis in England as well. So there are these kind of differences um, within the UK. Um, and I think um, part of what um, we're doing in our research is a survey of refugee um, populations so people from Ukraine in the UK, Poland and Romania. And so we're hoping that um, our survey kind of pulls out some of those differences. And, and you know, we're interested in, in those geographical changes and also the way that those different kind of governments and authorities have have represented and entered into, um, you know, conversation with local communities about why they responded in particular ways and, and why why, you know, um, 
why why they've taken this on and i think this is a particular thing that you know is in line with scottish policy in general um towards refugees and asylum seekers historically as well so it's probably not a surprise you know um, to most of us but but actually what difference has that made to, to people who have fled the conflicts which i think um uh is an important question to ask and so it's one we're asking in our research as well yeah again you know and that kind of you know the, the role of immigration in the British political debate um, and I use the word British advisedly you know is is very uneven and you know is you know situated in specific kind of things and what's interesting we you know we're speaking just uh, uh, after the latest set of migration figures have been released again at kind of historic highs and at the key part of the reason for that is the presence of large numbers of Ukrainians uh, entering the UK under these schemes. And yet in all the kind of the commentary around that, uh, I don't hear anyone saying that we should be, you know, limiting or closing those schemes for Ukrainians or for Hong Kong uh, citizens who have come in on a, a similar kind of scheme. So again you know as our fellow senior fellow rob ford would you know uh, unpick you know attitudes towards specific kinds of migrants uh is often very positive but you know in the aggregated sense you know the the, the big figure uh we often see some different kind of uh views and understandings so we kind of end up with this very uh tortured debate in which it's not entirely clear what we're aiming for and what the, the kind of priority uh, might be. I do think though that the obviously um, the situation with people who have fled Ukraine does open up opportunities to you know to discuss I guess in more you know um, in more realistic ways I would say um, the needs of people on the move and what the role of people on the move might have in our society more generally. We've seen very, very polarised debates, I guess, and, and Brexit was a huge part of that. Um, but I, I suppose, you know, I, I would say this as a border studies scholar, but, but I think, you know, um, what we've had for a number of years is a proliferation really of legislation based on debates that are very kind of superficial and shallow and kind of expect borders to do very kind of specific things which and actually we need to kind of open out those debates to be more realistic and think about as you said um people on the move um borders kind of you know try to filter those people on the move and it's national governments kind of uh you know uh you know it's it's part of their imperative really to think about how they might use border controls um to to control um those flows and movements of people and, and i think it's really important for us to get back to the fact that you know anytime we enact controls there will be people that potentially are harmed by those controls so it's you know this proliferation of legislation is you know you know based on these kind of polarizing debates really harms particular groups of people and individuals and and so we have to take more seriously I think um, this imperative of you know um, what, what do we want um, our borders to do what do we want kind of our bordering practices and processes because of course they're not just at borders what, what do we want them to do um, in the future and I think in society there's quite a, a range of views you know on on 
on what you know who would be filtered and why and and, and so we, we need to sort of think these things through in a much more rigorous way and and of course um i would argue that a lot of the research you know um in critical migration studies critical border studies you know points to the fact that 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 there needs to be a, a very a very distinct uh change in the way that we're discussing these on a kind of political level as well no i i completely support that and again this notion of you know, a, a border always ends up excluding some people who you don't want to exclude and you know what matters more is that you know is it about making sure all the people you want to be able to access have access have access or is it about just you know is about restriction or about enabling and i agree you know we're it's clear that we're going across uh many countries this kind of questioning of whether the the architecture that we have is still fit for purpose uh, and again you know kind of to circle back to where we started you know we've got an architecture that was built out of the the experience of the second world war uh, that the refugee convention is built on a very particular situation that was uh, obtaining in in mostly in europe and you know and now we're in a, a rather different age not least because of climate change and uh, the migratory pressures that that creates um, and you know the, the again that kind of changing situation for many countries that, that they're not the places that they used to be either in terms of sending or receiving people uh, and you know how how that actually plays out I think clearly is a is a, a macro challenge and mm -hmm. yeah talking to, to scholars working in this field I, I do get the impression that there is substantial dissatisfaction with how things are um, which is not limited to that area of uh, policy but also I think a, a sense of uncertainty about whether if you did try to unpick that regime that you might end up with nothing and I think you know particularly in an age where we have a rise of far-right anti-immigration openly anti-immigration politicians you know we think about the Dutch elections with the success of Matt Wilders and the BVV uh, is the latest example this week that yeah there is a, a worry that maybe it's maybe it's just better to not tamper with something that's not that great the for risk of not having anything at all yeah but i i think you know if, if we do seize the opportunity that um you know um the the Ukrainian context gives us that they're also it also provides us with you know possibilities and i think i think we have to open ourselves up to the idea that 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 perhaps there's there's not ideal solutions but there are other kind of pathways i think one of the things that um you know we've seen in our research particularly with people from ukraine is people from ukraine have been carving out within the temporary protection directive or within um the uk scheme as well they've been carving out uh, the things that they want um, and the things that make sense to them and their families. And I think that that's really important for us to, to, to think about, you know, so for example, um, we've seen people who just want respite care. So if they're in areas of active conflict, um, they're going to Romania um, for a month, maybe a couple of months, and then they're kind of returning. And um, and, and and in terms of kind of social reproduction as well, you know, if, if you know, ultimately we were talking about, you know, the potential of Ukraine as a kind of member state and accession, et cetera, you know, um, the EU wants to, to have a, a, 
a good <laughs> member state that's the kind of a sustainable society as well. And I guess, you know, social reproduction, you know, is something, you know, that, that we've talked about a lot in the context of, of people fleeing Ukraine as well, because people have to kind of carry on the reproduction of their own families, but also their kind of communities as well. And, and what does that look like when some people are kind of temporarily elsewhere or these kind of connections become transnational? So the, the whole point is that, you know, connect, you know, we are transnationally connected anyway. Ukraine was already connected to the European Union by kind of communities. Um, so whether it's a member state or not, you know, a lot of parts of Ukraine were dependent on flows of kind of money coming in from other countries in the European Union as well. So whatever the kind of, you know, the that the formal relations are people have kind of reorientated their lives and 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 I think you know learning from that and then letting some of that influence the way that we're making policies around border and borders and immigration actually um should be the way to do it in my view rather um than kind of starting from frameworks that are built upon discourses that just don't reflect the realities of people's lives um in communities across Europe and, and in the UK as well. I think that's uh, a very positive sentiment on which to, to pull this together. Uh, you know, I think things don't stand still. Um, but I think, you know, with the, the work you've been doing, what we talked about, I think, you know, it starts to help us to have those kind of conversations. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk uh, with the podcast. And uh, we look forward to coming back to you as the projects uh, develop and picking up things uh, as we go along. Thanks very much.